A little girl was being reprimanded by her mother, and for good reason. She had just pushed her little brother to the ground, and then she spit on him. So the mother was shocked by this behavior. Girl, what got into you? I, man, if I didn't know any better, I'd think the devil himself made you do that. And the little girl said, no, Mommy, I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe the devil had me push him to the ground, but spitting on him, that was all my idea. I did that all by myself. Today, we are talking about what do we believe about Satan? Is there really a devil or is that just an image we use to try to explain the evil we see around us? And if there is a devil, what kind of power and influence can he actually have over us? I mean, can he really make us do bad things? Or is it like the little girl said, we need to bear the responsibility for the sins we commit? You know, if you read the Bible and you start in the very beginning, page 1, Genesis 1, you see that everything started off in a grand way. God creates the universe and everything he makes is beautiful and good. I mean, the whole world is a living display of his genius. You see his genius in the diversity of what he's made. You see his genius in the, in the grandeur of what he's made. But then you get over to page 3, page 4 in your Bible, and all of a sudden something appears that seems to be out of place. God's perfect creation isn't perfect anymore. Now one of his creatures, he's called the serpent there in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus calls him Satan. All of a sudden one of his creatures is trying to undermine God's authority and trying to ruin things for Adam and Eve. And so immediately all kinds of questions pop in our minds. Where did he come from? And how did he get this way? I mean, we know Genesis chapter 1 that everything God made was good. I mean, in the beginning it was all good. So how did Satan wind up being so bad? And why would he ever want to rebel against God? And then once he rebelled, why did God let him stick around? I mean, why not destroy him right off the bat and keep the rest of the world from going bad? Why let Satan rebel and then let him stick around and have this opportunity to encourage other creatures to rebel against God too? I mean, just all kinds of questions pop into our minds because there's so much we don't understand. And the frustrating thing is the Bible doesn't answer many of those questions. And here's why. This book, the Bible, is not a biography of Satan. This book, the Bible, is a biography of God. You see, the, the Lord does not want us to become obsessed with evil, so obsessed with the world of darkness that now that world of darkness begins to capture our imagination and capture our fascination. Now the evil one begins to dominate our thoughts. That's not healthy. Genesis chapter 3 demonstrates that. Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells us that Satan is crafty, meaning clever, smart, super smart. Smarter than any of us, which means unless you are standing strong in the Lord and all the resources that he provides, unless you have that kind of advantage, you can't win with the devil. He'll beat you every time. You cannot fight him all by yourself. Adam and Eve are proof of that. So to keep us from becoming preoccupied with the evil one, where we're focusing way too much attention on him, the Bible intentionally keeps the information on Satan brief. In other words, the Bible's not going to tell us everything we want to know, but it will tell us everything we need to know. And here's what you need to know. He is real. The devil, he is real. You know, we live in an amazing age where all kinds of advances have been made in the world of science, the world of medicine, the world of psychology, and as a result, we have a much better understanding of what it is that actually makes us tick. You know, we have a much better understanding of the brain and its chemistry, and so we know that when something goes wrong up here, it's going to have serious consequences for our behavior. 
And we have a much better understanding of some of those childhood traumas where the shock of what happened to us long, long ago still makes an impact on our lives today. That painful moment early in our childhood years where we experienced something that was deeply distressing and deeply disturbing, it can still have de devastating consequences today. So uh, today we've got a much better understanding of what pushes our buttons and what causes us to act the way we do. But here's the danger. With all of this new knowledge and with all these amazing discoveries, we begin to think that the world of science can just explain it all. That words like wicked and evil, wow, that's old-fashioned, irrelevant, we know better now. And now we prefer to use terms like dysfunctional to explain the bad behavior of other people. You know, human beings are just simply machines, and sometimes this machine does not perform the way it should. Well, the Bible says no. Science can explain a few things, but it can't explain everything. Jesus makes it clear there is a devil. He is real, and he is never to be taken for granted. That's why at every point along the way, whenever Jesus talks about him, he always refers to him by name because Jesus knows he is real. He is a real person. And the name that Jesus most often use, uses when he talks about the evil one is Satan because that name literally means adversary, opponent, or literally one who stands in the way, one who tries to block your path because that's what the devil is all about. He wants to keep you from connecting with God. And he'll do whatever it takes, violence, lies, persecution, temptation, suffering. He'll use any tool he can to keep you out of touch with the Lord. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, ah, oh, come on, David, I'm not sure I buy this. How can you believe in something you can't even see? I mean, here we are talking about the devil. We're talking about a creature who's invisible. How can you believe in something you can't even see? Well, come back to the world of science. Please understand, all truth is God's truth. Whether you discover that truth in the world of science or you discover that truth in the world of Bi uh, the Bible, all truth is God's truth. It all ultimately points back to him. And the world of science has shown us there's more to the universe than what you can see with the physical eye. For example, we have empirical evidence that there really are things like bacteria and viruses. I mean, things that are invisible, but we know they exist because anytime any of those bacteria or viruses interact with the chemistry of our human body, it has adverse effects upon us. So the world of science has shown us that there are parasites, actual parasites, that, that even though it's invisible, you can't see it with the naked eye, yet it's a real part of the world, and it can be dangerous to our human anatomy. Well, the Bible shows us there are spiritual parasites, actual creatures, what the Bible calls, Matthew chapter 25, the devil and his angels, real creatures who are nothing but evil. And even though they're invisible to the human eye, they are a real part of this world, and many of the horrible things that happen in this world happen because of them. And that's why the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 6, that our real struggle, the real battle that we fight, is not against flesh and blood. It's not with other people. The real battle we fight is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. And we need to be aware of that. A couple of years ago, I heard about a man who had moved to Chicago, so he's new to the city, didn't really know his way around. He'd spend his whole life, he grew up in a small town, spent his whole life working and living in that same small town. But now, all of a sudden, he moves to this big city where this is just a whole new experience for him and kind of intimidating. So the first couple of weeks, just to kind of play it safe, he decided to take the bus to work. Hey, let somebody else sit in the driver's seat. Let somebody else take the lead, somebody who really knows where they're going. Well, that was a good idea. Because you see, one day, the bus stopped at the corner of Clark and Webster, and three people got on board, two men and a woman. And immediately, the bus driver, being the seasoned veteran, a guy who knew this city inside and out, immediately he recognized who they were, that they were up to no good. 
So he stood up and announced to all the passengers, uh, grab your wallets, hang on to your purses, because three professional thieves, three professional pickpockets have just stepped on this bus, and I don't want you to lose anything. So instantly, all the women clutched the purses, all the guys reached for the wallets, and all eyes were now firmly fixed on this trio of troublemakers. Well, the thieves did not like this. They didn't like having the spotlight put on them and their sneaky behavior. Now, all of a sudden, their true intentions have been exposed. Now, they couldn't take anybody by surprise. Now, their evil schemes had, had been spoiled. So, right away, those three thieves, they gave that bus driver a dirty luck, and they immediately exited the bus. Now, what the bus driver did that day for his passengers is exactly what Jesus wants to do for us. See, because the bus driver cared about his passengers, and he wanted to make sure they arrived safely at their destination, so he warned them about the dangers along the way. I don't want anybody to pick your pocket and steal what is valuable to you. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does for us because he cares. I mean, he really cares. And he wants to make sure that we reach our destiny, a new heavens and a new earth. So he's going to warn us about the dangers that are along the way. He's going to make us aware of that threat we face anytime we encounter Satan or one of his demons, because Jesus knows what they're up to. They're not here just to pick your pocket. They are here to steal every bit of faith, every bit of hope out of your heart. They are here to wreck and ruin your relationship with God. And that's why all the way through his work, God just puts the spotlight on Satan so that he can expose his work and show us how to resist him. Here's one example, James chapter 4 and verse 7. Look at this verse with me. James chapter 4 Verse 7 says, submit to yourselves, submit, surrender. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he'll run. He will. You can count on this. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I'm going to start with the last part of that verse first. God is emphasizing the devil can be resisted. He cannot make you do anything wrong. You can close the door on him. Yes, the devil knows what we're drawn to. He knows what we're prone to do. He is fully aware of our weaknesses. And yes, the devil is a master at creating circumstances, creating an environment, setting up a situation. Hey, I know this is going to be tempting to you. Here's a situation where likely you're going to want to give in. But even then, you do not have to yield to that temptation. And here's why. The devil's not God. And he is not godlike. He is not divine. He is not a fallen deity. He's a fallen creature but not a fallen deity. You see, unlike God, the devil is not omnipotent, omniscient, or omnipresent, meaning he doesn't know everything. He cannot read your mind. Now, he'll like to fool you into thinking that he can because the devil is an astute observer and he's witnessed all the details of your life, so he can make some pretty good guesses about you. But unlike God, he cannot see what's in your heart. He does not have those godlike powers. He's limited what he knows. Number two, he's limited to one place at one time. He can't be everywhere at once. That's why the devil has to have an army, an army of demons to help him carry out his work. But though the devil has an army, God has an army too, an army of angels. And you take some time to read, uh, you, you find a time, a place to sit down and read Daniel chapter 10, and you read about what happens when the angels and the demons engage in battle. I mean, there's a struggle, there's a real struggle, but the angels win. So you see, the devil is not only no match for God, he's no match for the angels either. And that brings me to the third thing, he's not all-powerful. He can be resisted. You can say, no, you can close the door on him. Let me give you an example. Mark chapter 5, you read about one of the worst cases of demonic influence that has ever occurred in the history of the world. Here's a man that the Bible describes as under attack by a legion of demons. We're talking about a whole army of evil spirits trying to wreck and ruin this one man's life. 
But though he is under attack by a whole legion of demons, yet that man still has the capacity to make this decision, to make this choice, to take this action. He's still able to run to the feet of Jesus and seek help from the Lord. And the help is given. And that man is set free from that horrendous evil. Now think about this. Here's a man who seemed to be beyond hope, a legion of demons. Here's a man who seemed to be fully under the control of the enemy. And yet he was not. He could still reach out to Jesus and be set free from the darkness. So, in the very end, at the end of the story, what do you see? You see a man who's now fully dressed, who is sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. He is now in his right mind, fully redeemed, fully restored. He's a new man. He is a brand new man. And what the Bible's trying to show us is that what happened to him, it can happen to anybody who right now is living under the dominion of darkness. You can have victory in Jesus. You can resist him. In other words, the point is this. Don't make the devil out to be bigger than what he is. Yeah, he's, he's bigger than us, but he is not bigger than God. He can be resisted. How? Well, come back to the first part of this verse. Here's the very best way to do it. Submit. Just surrender yourself to God. And what we're talking about here is something that you've got to do every single day. Every day, instead of just surrendering to that temptation, every day, instead of just surrendering your mind to this lie, every day, instead of just giving in to that which is not good for you, every day, instead of just placing yourself under the influence of all this stuff that can hurt and harm you, instead of doing that, every day, you intentionally surrender yourself to God. You once again place yourself under His authority. You once again invite Him and pray for Him. God, I want you to take charge. And then throughout the rest of the day, you just consciously commit yourself to follow his lead, to keep your heart focused upon him. In other words, at the beginning of the day, you just say, God, I have no clue what kind of challenges, what kind of troubles are about to come my way this day. You know that. I don't. But the one thing I do know is this. I am not going to make it safely through this day unless I am constantly relying and depending upon you. So right now, at the beginning of the day, I'm just going to surrender myself and all that is about to happen. I'm just surrendering all. You ever noticed when uh, you pay to see a movie or to watch a ball game or to attend a concert, how they give you this ticket? And then you take the ticket with you and you come to the door, or you come to the turnstile and they take the ticket and they tear it in half. Give half to you, keep the other half for themselves. And then you ever notice the expression that you have on your half of the ticket? Not good if detached. Meaning what? Meaning you can't use the ticket anymore. Even though your half of the ticket looks just like the other half, even though your half of the ticket is printed with the same ink, printed with the same words, printed on the same exact material, but once it's been torn on two, it's useless. The power of that ticket to open doors and get you into events, the power of that ticket to take you places and give you access to something special, that power has now disappeared. For the ticket to remain useful, it must remain connected. Once it's torn in two, it's worthless. It can't do anything for you. Is that not a perfect description of our Christian life? We're not good if we're detached, detached from God. When we begin to drift, we allow distance to, be between, to develop between us where his words are no longer guiding our choices. His thoughts, his voice is no longer influencing our thoughts. We're acting like he's not even around. We're acting like it's all up to us. And once we become detached, what happens? We lose the power, the power to resist. In our staff meeting this past week, Rob was telling us about his uh, trip to India. You've heard him share this in other contexts. Over there in India, working with our missionaries, David and Philomena Morris, and he tells about a day 
when they got a chance to visit a Hindu temple. Here's this large, elaborate building sitting in the midst of this horrible poverty. And why? Because the people in all the villages around were devoting all their resources and giving all their treasures to build and maintain this fancy building just so they could worship one of their Hindu gods. And Rob said, as he and the team, as they stepped inside that temple, immediately you could feel the darkness. You could just feel the evil of that place. So they didn't stay inside there very long. But as they were walking around observing how the people are worshiping this Hindu deity, they saw the mothers taking their babies and their children and covering them with ashes so as to consecrate their children to that which is not of God. And Rob said as they're walking through the temple, he noticed one of the ladies of the team, of their missionary team, how as they were walking through the temple, she's just quietly singing hymns to herself singing praise courses because she could feel the darkness too. She knew we're in a bad place. And to make sure the evil of that place had no effect upon her as she stepped into the darkness, she stepped in with light, with the light of God. See, by singing those songs and thinking about the words of those songs, she was keeping herself surrendered to the Lord, keeping herself covered by His influence, covered by His protective Wednesday night in our D group, we were talking about this and how do you stay connected to the Lord throughout the course of a day, especially when your day just gets so busy and so stressful. And we mentioned this idea that Rick Warren shares in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He talks about the breath prayers. Prayers that you can say with just a single breath, just, just some simple words and phrases that throughout the day remind you of God and your connection to Him. Prayers like, I'm trusting you, Lord. Or, Lord, right now, I'm just depending upon you. Or, God, I'm glad that you're here. I'm not alone. Or, God, it is so good to know I belong to you. And sometimes people do this staying connected to God. They do this not just with prayers. They'll do it with Scripture. They'll memorize verses, short verses, verses that are easy to remember, but you can keep repeating throughout the day. Verses like, I can do all things through Christ. Or God is my helper. I don't need to be afraid. Or he will never leave me or forsake me. Or God is my refuge and strength. And do you see what you're doing again and again throughout the day at different points along the way? You deliberately just pause to remind yourself, he's the vine, I'm the branch. Jesus is the vine, I'm just a branch. And it's not the job of this branch to bear fruit. That's what the vine does. That's what Jesus does. My one and only responsibility is this as a branch just stay attached to the vine. Stay connected to Jesus, and he'll take care of the rest. When I was a little kid, uh, every day at the newspaper, I loved to read newspapers, but I only re- I didn't, never read the news. I'd read sports, and then I'd go to the comic strips. And the comic strips, my favorite, was always Charlie Brown. I know it's called Peanuts. That's the title of the comic strip, but Charlie Brown's the main character. This lovable, adorable loser. I mean, do you remember how every time he tried to kick the football, Lucy would always pull it out at the very last second, and Charlie Brown, poor Charlie Brown, he'd wind up flat on his back. His baseball team never won. They lost every single game they played. And the little red-haired girl that Charlie Brown just loved and adored, he just never worked up the courage to actually talk to her and see if there might be a friendship here. I mean, every day at the end of the comic strip, you come walking away thinking, poor old Charlie Brown, things just never seem to work out for him. Well, three years ago, they made a movie called Peanuts. Same title as the comic strip, same cast of character. Only in the movie, things had changed. Now in the movie, when Charlie Brown flies the kite, it actually stays up in the air. 
Now in the movie, when Charlie Brown has to write a paper at school, a, a book report on war and peace of all things, now instead of getting his usual D minus, he writes a great paper, the best essay of all. And now in the movie, at the end of the movie, he actually talks to the red-haired girl and he discovers that she likes and admires him too. And a budding romance, a whole new friendship begins. I mean, it's wonderful. I watch this movie all the time with my grandkids and I'll watch it many more times. It is a great movie. But here's the question. Why is the movie so different from the comic strip? Here's why. Because for years and years and years, there were just one man, only one man, who ever wrote the comic strip, Charles Schultz. 1999, he got colon cancer, and a year later, he died. So 15 years later, when they decided to make the movie, that meant somebody else had to write the script. A different author was telling the story, and now in the new story, Charlie Brown got a complete makeover. Suddenly, Charlie Brown found himself in the midst of a much better story because now somebody else was in charge. Somebody else was developing the plot. That's exactly what the Bible is teaching here in James chapter 4 and verse 7. When it tells us to resist the devil and every day just surrender yourself to God. Here's what you're saying. God, I want you to write my story. I'm tired of trying to write my own script. I'm tired of trying to develop my own plot. That's not working out for me. God, I want you to take over. I want you to, have, to take charge, to take the lead in my life. Because you tell. God, I, I want to borrow the words of Jesus, that the words of John 15, just keep uh, moving in my mind and heart. So I borrow those words today. Just remain in us. Come and abide with us. God, come and fill our lives today with your presence and fill our lives so full of your presence, God. There is not room for anything that is wicked or wrong. God, you know us. We're human, we're frail, and we are sinful. And there are going to be many times when we stumble and fall. But God, when we do, when we fall short of your glory, when we sin, God, quickly remind us that your love for us never fails. That there is still forgiveness in Jesus. That Jesus can make us clean. Jesus can make us whole again. So God, any time we stumble and fall, may we be quick to run back to Jesus. God, today, today purifies from all that is unrighteous. God set us free from any kind of influence the evil one may now have over all. Set us free. Deliver us from that evil. And God, let us experience the joy of just living in your light, just staying in your light. God, let us experience the joy of having this deep and everlasting friendship with you. That's the blessing we want. That's the blessing we seek. And we seek for it in Jesus' name. Amen.